2: I have you loud
3: and clear.
1: <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome.
4: <laughs>
0: Science.
3: And that is to say. Physics. Medicine. Nature. Or. Space.
0: Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello, this week the Naked Scientists
1: Sense Month comes to a close as we get to grips with touch. Plus, making greener concrete and how climate change could be affecting birds. I'm Katie Haler. I'm Georgia Mills. And this is The Naked Scientists.
3: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk.
0: First up in the news, it's a big anniversary at the moment because 65 years ago, the journal Nature published Watson and Crick's historic paper revealing the structure of DNA, or as James Watson put it, the secret of life. Since then, molecular biology has taken the world by storm. The NHS is busy reading the genetic codes of 100,000 patients, and scientists in America have announced ambitious plans to sequence the DNA of all life on Earth. So Katie's been taking a look at two other recent DNA developments.
1: The iconic double helix. It's like an extravagant staircase with phosphate sugar railings and steps made from bases, either C paired with G or A paired with T. These bases code for amino acids, which make up proteins, and these have a whole range of functions in the body. 65 years on from publishing the structure of DNA, scientists are now using this amazing molecule in a number of different ways. One way is to go in and disrupt, modify or make additions to existing genetic material – And, as well as coding for you and me, DNA could also be coding for music. It's not just humans that have DNA. Plants, animals, even microorganisms have it too. And once inside cells, viruses hack into the replication machinery of other organisms to make many copies of their own DNA, or DNA's chemical cousin, RNA. Now, bacteria have evolved a very clever defence mechanism against this invasion. They chop up the viral DNA that's starting to invade. Known as CRISPR, this DNA manipulation technique has now been harnessed by scientists and is having an incredible impact across biology. Here's Jonathan Pettit from the University of Aberdeen.
5: CRISPR gives us the power for the first time to make changes at will, potentially to anywhere in an organism's DNA. So it means that we can remove genes, we can modify genes, we can add in genes. So we could potentially modify an organism and give it a gene that it's never had before. The key thing behind CRISPR is an enzyme which cuts DNA at a specific point. It uses a programmable sequence that we can engineer to target it to a specific piece of DNA, and it works like a, essentially like molecular scissors it goes to the place we've targeted it to, and it makes a cut in the DNA. It's having an enormous impact in basic biological research because questions that we previously wouldn't have been able to attempt are now open to us. In my own research, for instance, I work on a nematode C. elegans and it's a brilliant model organism for doing genetics but we've long wanted to be able to remove lots and lots of genes at once and previously that's not been technically possible and now we can do that. And the key issue with that is that we know for lots of animals they have backup copies of given genes. So if you have, say, 11 genes doing the same thing or doing overlapping things, you often don't see the effect of those genes until you've removed all 11. And we can do that now with CRISPR. One of the things I haven't mentioned is that all enzymes are error-prone. And so we know that it will cut most effectively in in the region we're targeting it to, but there are also off-target effects. And obviously, if we're going to use it in a human scenario, in therapeutics, that would need to be solved.
1: CRISPR can in theory be used in any situation where you want to study how genes work and this is having an enormous impact on for instance research into cancer caused by mutated genes but what about the molecule of dna itself could it serve another function dna is kind of like a biological suitcase it's a great natural storage device after all everything that's needed to make you is in it So if this molecule can store one type of data, genetic data, what about another? The modern world produces data at an incredible rate. Every phone, laptop, smart device, spreadsheet, it all has to be stored somewhere. And having the capacity to do so is becoming a problem as we operate increasingly data-hungry lives. So could DNA be the new hard disk? Word is out that scientists in Switzerland are working to store massive attacks album mezzanine in DNA, but it's incredibly expensive. So is DNA storage a realistic option? I spoke to information theorist Yossi Saier from Cambridge University and the European Molecular Biology Laboratory.
6: The main advantage of DNA is that you're storing data at the atomic level. So you're storing data in a much denser fashion. You can potentially solve the world's storage problem and replace huge data farms that occupy whole city blocks.
1: To do this, you first need to prepare the data in a way that allows you to retrieve it from DNA storage. Then you send off your request to a specialised company and they'll synthesise the DNA you've asked for and send it to you. Then when you want to retrieve it, you need to first amplify the DNA and then sequence it. And this is where the data is read. And hey, presto, you've got back your photo or Word document or, if you're a world-famous music group, album.
6: It is a gimmick technology and there's nothing wrong with that. But there is potential in the future for this technology to become extremely important and competitive. For that, there should be um, significant drops in the costs of storing DNA and improvements in the speed of, of storing it and retrieving it. When that happens, there is potential for a huge industry to develop. In all the other forms of storage or communication I worked on, when you send data in a certain order it's retrieved in that same order. In DNA, that's not the case. You put the data in a certain order, and then it's all stuck into a soup. And when you retrieve it, it comes back in a random order. So that's the sort of challenges I face. How do I prepare data in a way that when I retrieve it in a random order, I will still be able to give you back your photo, for example, without the pixels being all shuffled into a random order?
1: So that's one challenge. Cost and time are others. But some people, Yossi says, think that DNA storage could potentially safeguard some of humanity's most valuable data.
6: It's the technological apocalypse scenario where essentially mankind will somehow self-destroy or at least lose all technological ability. There'll be new Middle Ages where we'll basically go back to uh, basic technologies, maybe because of a war and so... Maybe in a thousand years, and we have a new uh, technological civilizations, they'll come up with new methods of storage, but they won't necessarily develop the same methods that we had. So they'll never be able to retrieve our magnetically stored or optically stored information. However, they will have an incentive to learn about DNA because that is present in nature. That's not something we've come up with. And hence, if we store our data using processes that, that mimic what happens in nature... The thought is that if they want to archive something really important that might survive this apocalyptic scenarios, DNA storage is an option for this. Even though it's costly and slow, it may be worth going through that for mankind's really valuable data.
0: Let's hope it doesn't come to that. That was Yossi Sayer from Cambridge University and before him Jonathan Pettit from the University of Aberdeen and they were both speaking with Katie.
1: Now, the world's worried about carbon emissions and the manufacture of cement to make concrete is one of the largest single contributors at between 5 and 10% of the world's total carbon dioxide output every year. So can this be cut down? Well, researchers from the University of Exeter think they've found a way to do it by adding graphene, the stuff that makes up graphite, the carbon in a pencil lead, to the mix. Georgia heard how it works from discoverer Dimitar Dimov.
7: We need to reduce the carbon emissions and we need to make the construction industry a more environmentally friendly one. One way to do it is to reduce the amount of concrete used per cubic meter, right? If you can reduce the amount of concrete, you decrease the amount of materials used on site and therefore there is less need for cement. But how do we do that? We needed to change something fundamentally in order to make concrete stronger and more durable to be able to withstand the, the current loading specifications around the world.
0: So how are you looking into this?
7: We are introducing the wonder nanomaterial graphene to the cement and concrete and this results in increased strength and therefore we can decrease the amount of material used per cubic metre.
0: What is graphene and how does it have this effect?
7: Graphene comes from graphite.
0: The stuff of pencils.
7: Yes, exactly. The graphite or the pencil, Its structure is composed of thousands of identical layers stacked on top of each other. One of these layers is called graphene. You can stretch it, you can bend it, and it will retain its original shape and size. So it's almost indestructible. (laughs) And uh, therefore I thought, okay, so why don't we combine the strongest nanomaterial ever discovered with concrete? Wouldn't that make it even stronger?
0: So what happens then when you add the graphene?
7: It increases the compressive strength by 140%. It increases the flexural strength by 80%. And probably the most fascinating property is that it increases the water permeability by 400%. So basically makes that material less permeable to water. Um, This is very important for two reasons. First, around the world you have uh, some areas subject to flooding... And if you have material which is less water permeable, that will increase its life. And also, water is uh, one of the main causes for um, concrete degradation. This means that internally the concrete degrades with time when it's subject to rain, basically. So if you have material which is less permeable, that only increases its uh, life cycle, and it needs less maintenance costs.
0: I guess graphene is a strong material, so adding it to... Another material, it increases the strength. That makes sense. But why on earth should it affect how water-resistant it is?
7: Um, That's a good question. When we add the graphene, it bonds with the cement crystals, right? So these crystals, they are various in terms of sizes and shapes. And uh, when they react with water, they just grow together and form a matrix. So what happens is that graphene comes in And it attaches to these crystals and leaves less air voids, leaves less cracks. The mechanical interlocking between these crystals is actually enhanced. It's much better than before. And this all happens on a nanoscale level. Therefore, when you have a denser matrix, it's more difficult for the water to go through the material.
0: Right. So when you have concrete, you have all these different sort of like little lumps of it all about and this graphene essentially is like a tiny tiny nano spider went in and threaded a web through it all and this catches the the larger water molecules before they can get in and do damage.
7: Yeah, exactly.
0: And so what's the catch then? It sounds too good to be true.
7: There is always a catch. I just haven't discovered it yet because (laughs) I haven't performed enough tests to find a catch. But from what I've seen, it's it's, uh, very promising. More research has to be done on this topic.
0: How easy will this be to scale up and actually put into use around the world?
7: Well, all of my samples are tested according to British standards for construction, so it's readily applicable on site. And the method that we use currently produces more than 100 liters per hour, uh, because you literally take the graphene in powder form, you put it in water, you blend it, and there you go. You have your graphene solution, you have your graphene in water, and you mix it with uh, cements and so to make concrete. So you can imagine if you take this to a factory, this could be easily scaled up. The method is very straightforward, and you don't use any expensive chemicals, or it's Very close to commercialization, I think.
1: Let's hope so. That was Dimitar Dimov from Exeter University, and the study was published in the journal Advanced Functional Materials.
8: So what we were trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate the ability to type using brain signals, anywhere between approximately four and approximately eight words per minute, a factor of between two and four faster than what's been demonstrated before.
3: Each month, the eLife podcast talks to some of the world's best scientists. Join me, Chris Smith, as I hear about breathtaking discoveries hot off the press. Find the eLife podcast on iTunes or listen and download for free from nakedscientist.com slash eLife.
0: Still to come, Census Month continues and we find out why having a hug is good for your health.
1: And now it's time to hear how technology intended to look for life on Mars can help to flush out explosives at an airport.
9: What happens when the science and technology of space comes down to Earth? Welcome to Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists, the mini-series that explores spin-offs from space technology that are being used on Earth. I'm Dr Stuart Higgins. This episode, how developing instruments to search for life on Mars, has led to a miniature pump that can be used in a handheld explosives detector. Millions of kilometres away, currently driving around the surface of Mars, is the Curiosity rover. Launched in 2011 and landing less than a year later on the red planet, Curiosity is looking for signs that life could have existed on Mars. One of those signs is the presence of organic compounds, carbon-based molecules that could have been formed by biological processes. And to determine whether those materials are present, the Curiosity rover is carrying its own miniature mass spectrometer. A mass spectrometer is a machine that can determine the relative amount of different atoms and molecules in a material. It works by first ionising a sample. Electrons are stripped from the outside of the atom, leaving behind charged atoms, known as ions. If you pass ions through a magnetic field, they experience a force which can cause them to change direction depending on their charge and mass. The larger the mass, the smaller the change in direction. In a mass spectrometer, this effect is used to deflect ions into a detector, producing an electrical current. By varying the strength of the magnetic field, ions with different masses strike the detector at different times, so it's possible to build up a map of different masses in a sample. One critical requirement, however, is that the mass spectrometer operates under a vacuum to avoid the ions colliding with air molecules. And that's fine in a lab down Earth where you have the room and power for big pumping systems, but on Mars they needed a smaller option. A US engineering firm working with NASA developed a miniature turbo-molecular pump. This is a special pump that from the outside looks a bit like a mini version of a jet engine you'd seen on a plane. Most normal pumps work by creating a difference in pressure. However, at very low pressures, the number of gas molecules left becomes so small that this approach no longer works. Instead, as the jet-like blades on the pump spin round, gas molecules enter by chance and are quickly knocked by the blades down into the pump and out of the system. And the miniature version of this type of pump is now finding new life in other mass spectrometers back on Earth. If you've been through airport security recently, you may have seen staff taking swabs from people's bags and placing them into a machine. That machine is a mass spectrometer, and it's looking for traces of dangerous chemicals. While these machines are still relatively big and bulky, researchers and companies are working to find ways of using the miniature vacuum pump developed for the Curiosity rover in handheld detectors. So that's how a miniature vacuum pump built to help find life on Mars is now being used to develop handheld detectors for explosives. That was Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists. My name is Dr Stuart Higgins and join me again soon to learn about more space technology that's being used back on Earth.
1: Thank you very much, Stuart.
0: Finally, at least 4,000 species of birds are long-distant migrants. They spend the spring and summer in locations like the UK, where they mate and rear their babies, and then they fly off somewhere warmer for the winter. Smart birds. But for this to work successfully, the birds have to time their arrival in the spring so it coincides with a big surge in the caterpillars they need for feeding their young, which happens when the trees first burst into life and into leaf. With the climate changing, though, some species are increasingly getting it wrong and arriving too late. So is this to blame for the drop we're seeing in bird populations in the south of England? Or is there something else going on? Malcolm Burgess is from the RSPB and the University of Exeter.
8: We're trying to find out whether the extent of mismatch, and that's the mismatch between when the chicks are hungriest and the timing of the peak availability of their favourite food, which is uh, caterpillars. We're interested in, in whether the extent of this mismatch differed between the north and the south of the UK. Our paper shows that spring is later the further north you go.
3: So how did you actually do the study? What were the questions you were asking and, and how did you gather the information to nail this?
8: Yeah so we were looking at three levels really. We we're looking at the emergence of the oak leaves, when the caterpillars emerge and when they're most abundant and then we we're looking at timing of breeding and the breeding success of the birds. And we've used citizen science data sets for the oak leafing data. We use records that people submit to the
3: UK phenology network. And what's that? People going out and asking, is that oak in leaf yet?
8: That's right. They're noting down when they first see the buds burst of the oak trees right right across the UK. And the caterpillars and the birds? Yeah, so the caterpillars is is a bit harder. But um, I linked up with somebody called Ken Smith, who'd come up with a very simple idea of collecting caterpillar droppings in a a simple seed tray which we put underneath uh, uh, oak trees in woods across the UK all throughout the spring and caterpillar poo is cylindrical in shape so it means that we can separate it from everything else that falls in the traps dry it and weigh it and from that we can we can see very clearly actually when the peak in the availability of caterpillars is. What
3: about the arrival of the birds? How did you log that?
8: Yeah, so we looked at both resident birds, which is blue tits and great tits, which are now woodlands all year round, and the migratory pie flycatcher. We measure their timing of breeding by monitoring their nests, and and as part of the British Trust for Ornithology's nest record scheme, many thousands of these nests are monitored each year, mostly, again, by citizen scientists, and we're able to use this information from across the UK to quantify the timing of egg laying when the uh, chicks hatch and when they're 10 days old, which is when they require the most food. And that's the moment that needs to coincide with the peak availability of caterpillars.
3: And bringing all of this information together, what trends emerged? What did you find?
8: We found that spring was, was later in the north, but importantly the extent of mismatch in any one year didn't vary between, uh, across the UK. So a population in the, in the north of the UK is just as mismatched as a population in the south that's really important because declines of many insectivorous birds and many migratory birds isn't uniform across the uk the declines are, are greater in, in southern england and it's been very often uh, linked to this this mismatch theory but you know importantly we show that that isn't actually the case there are other things driving these these declines
3: Obviously, the South is experiencing quite considerable development. So do you think that it's a population-slash-development-slash-agricultural impact, all these things working together and are they're affecting the environment and that's what's impacting the birds?
8: Those things will certainly all, all, all affect the birds, yes. Uh, and particularly thinking, again, about insectivorous birds, all those things are detrimental to the availability of insects. I'm sure that uh, many of us can remember when we were younger, the amount of insects that would hit our coal windscreens, uh, which just really doesn't happen anymore. So yes, you know any, any development and agricultural intensification has been well shown to affect um, insectivorous and seed-eating farmland birds, for example.
1: Malcolm Burgess on the pressures that migratory birds are facing as the south of the UK develops. And the report on that work has just come out in the journal Nature, Ecology and Evolution. And if you'd like to find out about that story or any of the others we've been
0: talking about, the transcripts and the papers can be found on our website. That's nakedscientist.com.
3: The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
0: This is The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and Katie Haler. And this month we've been exploring the senses. And in this show, which is our last one, it's all about touch. Coming up, how do we develop a sense of touch
1: and the scientists who are shining light on hypersensitivity? Stay tuned. But first, what exactly is this sensation that we call touch? How do we feel things? Here to tell us is neuroscientist Francis McClone from Liverpool John Moores University. Hello, Francis. Hello. Can you walk us through a situation? If I'm touching the table in front of me, how do I go from receiving this external peripheral stimulus to perceiving this
2: sensation. Okay I think the easiest way to look at that is the skin has lots of little microphones in it and those little microphones are basically encoding a mechanical stimulus that's happened on the skin surface. They're transducing that into an electrical signal which then passes up that nerve fibre. Now these nerve fibres are myelinated so the touch that most people know about is transmitted through myelinated nerve fibres so that information is travelling faster than a Formula 1 racing car into your brain and the second you touch something or something touches you you feel it immediately and these are low threshold mechanoreceptors.
1: So what is this myelination?
2: Well, is a sort of evolutionary trick, if you like. If you need to do something quickly, then you need a myelinated nerve that basically allows that signal to get to the brain very quickly. So motor nerves are the densest myelinated nerves because if you wanted to move, then you move instantaneously. If you didn't have myelin, then there'd be a delay between your intention to move and moving. And we see the consequence of that, of course, with diseases where there's demyelinization, such as multiple sclerosis.
1: I see. So what about these different inputs then? How about temperature versus pain or even itch, for example?
2: The somatosensory system, the skin senses, are in fact multisensory. So most of us feel touch as just a, a mechanical sense, but there's about 20 different types of receptors in the skin that respond to temperature, that respond to itch, and that respond to pain. So there's a, an array of information coming in from the body. basically tells you that the quality of something on your skin and then in muscles and joints we have more mechanoreceptors that basically tell your brain that a muscle's moved or that a limb has moved so pain and itch are transduced by a different class of nerve fibre called C fibres now C fibres are unmyelinated So they basically send information to the nervous system very slowly. So one has to ask, well, why would these systems have any function if they're transmitting information so slowly? Well, they're moving that information into emotional systems to govern behaviours that have more of an affective quality to them. We have two pain systems, by the way. We have a fast one, which gets you out of there quickly. So if you put your finger on a hot plate, you immediately pull back that's the first pain system protecting you to get away from that t- tissue-threatening stimulus. But if you've ever done that, you know that a couple of seconds later, that emotional throbbing, burning pain comes in. Now, that's C-fibres.
1: Talking of pain, what about nerve damage? How does damaging this particular system affect our sense of touch? In the widest sense, I guess, touch. I mean, kind of somatosensers in general.
2: Well, the classic loss of C-fibres we see with diabetic neuropathy, so patients that have diabetes, uh, these long nerve fibres, particularly the ones that innervate the feet, are the first ones to get damaged. Uh, and diabetic patients can lose their sense of touch. And in, and in fact, they lose their nociceptor sense of pain as well. So these nerve fibres can be damaged by conditions such as diabetes.
1: So inputs like temperature, pain, itch, they're all coming through a similar system, but it's different fibres that are responding in order for these signals to get up the nervous system, if you like, into the brain.
2: Yes. Again, we go back to that point that C fibres play a fundamental role in protecting us. And that protection is mediated by the behavioural states that as well are as accompanied by that affective state. So it's either rewarding or it's punishing.
1: Francis McLone, we're going to leave it there for now. We'll hear more from you later on. Thank you very much. Now that we know what our sense of touch is
0: and what it's capable of, how does this system develop in us in the first place? Stephanie Koch is a Marie Curie Research Fellow at University College London, and she studies how this somatosensory system develops in babies. And she's here with us in the studio. Welcome to the show. So to start with, do we know when these systems start to develop?
10: We're starting to get an idea of this. But to put this into context, it's really important to remember that infants, unlike adults, can't Tell us when they're experiencing touch or pain. So researchers and scientists really have to rely on behavioral cues and how they respond. Those are all spinal circuits, essentially, looking at the spinal circuitry. And when we look at that, we can see that as soon as an infant is born, they start to respond to touch and pain. And what changes over development is actually their sensitivity to touch and their sensitivity to pain. So infants are very sensitive to touch and to pain and they, we gradually become less so uh, with age. I've always noticed, yes, yeah, stinging nettles used to hurt a lot more when I was little. Do we know how these systems do develop? We're getting an idea of it. It's really interesting that both touch and pain learn from experience, these somatosensory systems, like vision and like the auditory system. But in a very unique way, they they don't learn from their own sensory modality. So it seems like touch is actually learning from spontaneous movements like muscle twitches, for example, and pain is learning through the experience of touch and that's actually really interesting because biology has evolved to allow us to learn what pain is without having to have the infant go through all these these potentially harmful experiences.
0: Wow that would seem quite
10: counterintuitive
0: You'd, you'd expect that pain teaches more pain. Right exactly. So
10: how do babies rely on touch to develop normally? A lot of what we've seen in both clinical studies and in animal studies is that skin-to-skin contact is really crucial for the normal development of infants as well as as animals, long-term and short-term. And we know that these touch circuits are really critical for the normal maturation of pain in general, and that's touch that's passive through movements as well as touch that's active in terms of of interactions for example and that touch allows pain circuits to be formed both physiologically and biologically so that as adults we can recognize what a painful stimulus is and avoid it uh, reflexively and protect ourselves
0: right and that's quite important so we don't all end up burning our fingers off and things like that so has anyone ever done the study to find out what happens if you're deprived of touch completely
10: we obviously can't really do that with infants with with humans. Most of the studies that have been done looking at this is with animal studies and if you deprive them entirely of touch then you stunt pain development even when when the animals grow up they feel pain as if they were newborns. So their thresholds to pain are very low and their sensitivity to touch is very high. And that shows us how important touch is for the development of a pain circuit in itself. So that's
0: deprivation. What about if an infant did have a a painful experience, for example, premature babies might have to undergo surgeries or something like that? Do we know what that does?
10: We're starting to have more of an idea of that. So we We've really been talking about how experience is necessary for the building of a touch and a pain later experience in life and how we're going to build our thresholds. So normally, whereas you and I will be able to to have that um, key setting, And that will allow us to 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 experience the world as we would. Otherwise, in some instances, as you're saying, uh, like premature infants, they're going to have repeated surgical interventions throughout their lives, and that means that their somatosensory experience is altered. And studies that have followed these infants have shown that they have an altered pain threshold for the rest of their lives, and in some cases, these these infants have higher pain thresholds. In some instances, there are lower pain thresholds. We don't fully understand the implications of this, but it's an area of active research and it's it's very important to look into.
0: Right. And um, what about birth itself? Because obviously we always talk about
10: how painful birth is for mothers. What about the, the baby? I think this is very interesting as a concept. We don't fully know, and I'm not really sure how we'd look into it, but it's clear that birth itself is a sensory experience. I think what we're looking at is how the infant is brought into the world and how that can perhaps prime them to be able to react with their surroundings later on. might be a very important moment then for
0: everyone. Stephanie Koch from University College London, thank you very much. Thank you.
1: So physical touch is very important for our physical and mental development. But what feels like a gentle touch for some people can be very painful for others. Allodynia or hypersensitivity to touch is debilitating. Even individual hairs brushing against the skin can be enough to cause considerable pain. So what can be done about it? Well, news is out this week of a potential light treatment that has shown promise in alleviating this hypersensitivity in mice. Georgia spoke to Paul Heppenstall from the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Rome. And Paul started off by explaining that hypersensitivity can come about as a symptom of what's called neuropathic pain.
11: Neuropathic pain is pain caused by an injury to the nervous system. That can come from a trauma, from an accident, or from a metabolic disease such as diabetes, or from chemotherapy, for example. This actually affects a large number of people. About 7 to 8% of people have some form of neuropathic pain. It has lots of different symptoms. um, An ongoing constant pain, hypersensitivity to touch and also hypersensitivity to cold. These pains are chronic and they they go on for a long time, often for a lifetime.
0: And do we know why people are sensitive to touch? What were the theories?
11: There are two possibilities. One is the pain-sensing neurons become more sensitive so that they can then detect light touch. The other possibility is the gentle-touch-sensing neurons somehow change their connectivity in the brain or in the spinal cord and then these provoke pain instead of pleasure. This argument's been going on for quite a while and this is what we tried to tackle.
0: Is there anything we can currently do about this?
11: At the moment it's very difficult to treat so most of the traditional ways for treating pain for example opiates and morphine don't really work with this type of pain. Anti-epileptics are sometimes used for this In these cases, they are also not particularly effective. About one in three people report some uh, improvement in their pain when they take one of these drugs. And of course, these have got quite horrible side effects as well.
0: Right, so what have you been doing to investigate this?
11: We started off by identifying a type of neuron that is responsible for detecting the gentlest of touches. We've then gone on to show that this same type of neuron is responsible for this mechanical hypersensitivity in neuropathic pain. Further, we've devised a method where we can shut off this neuron in neuropathic pain, uh, switch it off and stop uh, the mechanical hypersensitivity in this condition.
0: Right, so how did you go about doing that then?
11: By trying to find molecular markers for these different populations of neurons in the skin. And then from these, we made transgenic mice, which allowed us to manipulate these neurons either by switching them on or by switching them off. And once we can do this, we can look at the behaviour of the mouse and see uh, what happens to the behaviour when we turn on or turn off these neurons.
0: Right. And now we know which neurons are responsible for this. Is there anything we can do about it?
11: Yes. So the next step is to be able to turn these neurons off by using uh, pharmacological means rather than having to use transgenic animals to do this. Uh, So this is what we've tried to do, is we've developed methods whereby we can inject a chemical into the skin, shine light onto this chemical and then switch off these neurons and switch off the mechanical hypersensitivity.
0: That sounds fantastic, but how does that actually work?
11: we found a naturally occurring molecule which binds only to these neurons when you put it into the skin. We've then taken this molecule, it's a protein, and we've engineered it and attached onto it a so-called photosensitizer. If you shine light onto a photosensitizer, it then releases free radicals and zaps everything within about 10 nanometers of it. So we can load this onto the back of our protein, put it into the skin, it attaches to the neurons, we can then shine light onto the skin, and it will clip off the ends of these neurons in the skin, cause them to retract, and so that they no longer sense the forces which are acting upon the skin.
0: Could you see a reduction in pain in the animal when you did this?
11: So we saw a very strong reduction. Uh, The animals basically returned to normal, and this lasted for about three weeks after a single treatment.
0: Right, and so by depriving a mouse of this kind of touch sensation you're equally removing this chronic and terrible pain that comes with it
11: exactly so yeah I think that that is the trade-off the beauty of it is though is that you can target this to a very small area by shining the light only on the area where you have the pain so you would still have your normal touch sensitivity elsewhere throughout the body uh, but you would lose that pain in the area which is painful
0: okay so what has your work revealed to us about this then
11: firstly it's identified the neurons which are responsible for that we can now got a handle on these neurons and we can try and find out how it is that they work secondly this method of removing their endings by shining light onto them might be generalized for many other different types of, of sensory disorder such as for controlling itch or for controlling other different types of pain
0: how feasible do you think this will be logistics wise and price wise and just scientifically to scale up to human use
11: it's very early stage. Um, for us, it, the encouraging thing is that it works and we've never seen anything work quite so well. We've now got to do a lot of safety tests on this approach. We need to know whether it causes inflammation in itself. Maybe it also causes pain in itself uh, for a while. We need to be able to, to scale up and produce the chemical. It's a protein that we're producing. And of course, this is a challenge for uh, to make it reasonable levels. But uh, with these results in mind, we think it is worth it. And that's the way we're progressing.
0: And would you say then the, the debate has been put to bed by this, this research?
11: We've shown that if we remove the neurons, then mice don't get neuropathic pain. But also if we activate the neurons, then they do get neuropathic pain. So I think these both these gain of function, as we say, and loss of function experiments, are, I think they really confirm that.
1: So one to watch. Perhaps a future treatment for a very difficult condition. Paul Hepburn's still there from EMBL Rome. Uh.
0: Still to come on The Naked Scientist, the science of getting touchy-feely
1: when you're out shopping. We heard earlier just how important touch stimulus is for developing babies, but its importance doesn't stop there. Physical contact has a part to play throughout life, including into old age, and alongside the many advantages that our increasingly virtual world brings us, perhaps a lack of physical touch is one downside. Francis McClone, let's bring you back in here. Are we living in a less tactile world than we were previously?
2: In my experience probably yes and I think modern technology calls itself social media but it's actually quite antisocial in terms of the fact that very little physical contact is is mediated now between people it's done through a touch screen so yeah possibly there is less physical contact in terms of the way we socially mix
1: why yeah. is touch important for our health
2: when I described touch earlier, I described the sense of touch that most people know about. Now, that sense of touch is coded by what's called fast myelinated nerve fibers. So when somebody touches you, you feel it immediately. But in the late 1980s, early 1990s, another sense of touch nerve was discovered in human skin, which is a C-fiber. Now, we've heard about C-fibers earlier. C-fibers are nociceptors. These are the nerve fibers that code for itch and for pain. And they conduct information into the brain very slowly, a sort of walking speed. So they can have no function in terms of alerting you to something that's going on in the world. So for 20 years now, we've been characterising this C-fibre that responds to gentle touch and have built a whole sort of litany of research understanding that this is the nerve fibre that basically activates when you're cuddled or stroked or nurtured. It is probably... I would suggest one of the most important nerve fibers we have developmentally and even across the lifespan because it basically drives the reward of physical touch between a mother and a baby or two people.
1: It's easy to understand why developing a response to pain is important. You know, you have a stimulus that might be dangerous, so stop touching that thing. From an evolutionary point of view, why is this idea of gentle touch important?
2: If we look at these C-fibres, we know the C-nociceptor is fundamental to survival. We know the c pruriceptor is fundamental to survival. And I think the C-tactile afferent is equally fundamental to survival because this promotes the benefit of physical contact and social grouping. So these three C-fibres that evolved before the fast ones, by the way, were the first systems to go down that basically protect, And once you have those systems in place, you can get off your rock and start exploring. So the C-tactile one is the one that basically drives the benefit of social contact.
1: And it's not just with children that touch is important, is it? It's important to mention other stages of life and in the elderly population as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. Across the lifespan. I mean, there's the scientific evidence that elderly people who are just touched on the shoulder in an old people's home eat more food. There's something, it's called the Midas touch. So, yes, across the lifespan, these C tactile afferents are playing a fundamental role in engaging social interactions between humans. And the less we do this, I think there'll be a cost.
1: Is there a certain frequency of gentle touch? What makes a touch gentle? (laughs)
2: There is indeed. Well, we record from these nerve fibres. I mean, we've we've got the only lab in the country, actually, that using this technique of micro-neurography, we can put a small electrode into a nerve bundle and we can record from a C-tactile afferent. And when we do finally get one, if you stroke across its receptive field, it's tuned to a particular velocity. Basically, around about 3 to 5 centimetres per second stroking velocity, that nerve fibre is firing optimally. If you go faster or slower the nerve fibre basically responds less. Now, if you ask people in a psychophysical experiment and you produce different velocities of stroking over the skin, again, they will say that roughly 3 to 5 centimetres per second is far more pleasant than, say, one at 30 or one at less than 1.
1: Me and Georgia are here in the studio practicing. Stroking each other. Wow, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful,
2: this is a beautiful system. The first order the neuron responds optimally to exactly the stroking velocity that you would stroke your baby or, or your partner.
1: So it's basically the formula for the perfect hug.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, these nerve fibres, by the way, respond optimally to a gentle stroking, but they will also respond to a, to a gentle static touch. But they optimally prefer something which is moving across the skin in a stroking movement rather than just a physical contact.
0: Francis I have a quick question why is it mm-hmm. some people sort of like the sensation other people if you sort of run a finger down their arm they will lose their mind and curl up into a ball because it tickles them so much do we know why some people just cannot deal with it?
2: <laughs> I think well I'm probably a victim of that being brought up in, by parents in the 50s where hugging was not a particularly uh, common thing to do so I think there's some developmental influences in terms of physical contact between parents and kids. So, you know, some, some people don't like being stroked or touched and other people can't get enough of it. But I think, it, to a large extent, it may be experiential. That's one of our sort of theories that neglect is so devastating to the developing social brain.
1: It just goes to show that having a hug makes me feel better but could be better for my health as well. Francis McClone from Liverpool John Moores, thank you very much.
0: Touch is clearly a very important sense throughout our entire lives. But one place you might not expect it to be important is when you're at the shops. Katie went for a browse in a department store with consumer psychologist Catherine Janssen boyd from Anglia Ruskin University to find out why, for shops, touch is big business.
4: What people try to achieve in terms of marketing techniques is that they want people to touch products and goods in general within a store environment. But what happens is that it changes people's perception. To start off with, it feels like something belongs to you. You take ownership of the item that you're actually touching. And that effectively means that it increases their likelihood of purchase. But then it's also about trying to enhance the fact that something feels in a certain way, luxurious perhaps, you again... It's a little bit more prepared to actually part with your money. But equally, it could be that you're just trying to get people drawn to a particular item so that they're more likely to buy this over the competitors. So if you make something look quite touchable, effectively, then people are more likely to go up and touch that particular item.
1: I think we should escape the wind, go inside this department store and see what we can browse. Okay. Should I let you go first? I'm going to fall over. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Don't fall. (laughs) I've got to be honest, whenever I come into a shop like this, I just go around touching everything. That's <laughs> quite common. You're not on your own. I'm not on
4: my own. No. A lot of people have a genuine need for touch, which is what you're describing. And those consumers in particular will go around and touch virtually
1: anything that they think maybe they will want to have a closer look at. It's quite easy to see how you would want to understand the touch of clothes because yes. you're wearing them on your skin. Yes. Where it becomes perhaps less obvious is in things like packaging or displays. Why is touch important there?
4: Well, for the similar kind of reasons. To start off with, it's purely about attracting someone to go up to touch it so that they actually want to buy it. But then it's about reinforcing something. So if you have a perfume box that has a certain kind of texture on it, that might send you signals that it feels luxurious, maybe it feels cheaper. And often the boxes are a reflection of the actual price and the image that perhaps the perfumer is trying to portray. Okay, so fancy, luxurious
1: box, fancy, luxurious perfume. Absolutely. So can we take a look at a couple of displays We're going to head over to the clothes section now. And this is really common. You see this in so many clothes shops. There's clothes hanging up on the racks, but there's also a table where you have, for example, jeans folded. And you are allowed to go up and touch them.
4: Yes, we are. And now we've got a shop assistant who may look at us. Well find out what happens (laughs) but effectively you unfold something they're folded up so you can't see them fully you just unfolded a pair of very
1: nice looking white jeans yes i I have
4: you might see the colors and you think oh they're attractive colors but actually to see what it looks like you need to go up and unfold them again this increases the likelihood of you purchasing them because you have just taken ownership of them psychologically you think oh they look quite nice now let's try to find my size
1: We've now wandered over to the a children's toy section and there's one particular item that's caught our attention. It's a sticker box designed for ages three and above and despite having a lot of interesting pictures on it, it also feels quite interesting.
4: Yes, it does. And this is because children who are visually drawn to something would go up and touch it extensively. The tactile sense is the first sense to develop in the womb. And when children come out... So, they explore things haptically. As I'm sure you know, vision is impaired in in the newborn and so forth. So they really, really experience things through their bodies. Of course, if you then look at when they start crawling and moving, they usually go up and they touch everything inside. Mm -hmm. And this is because they have a need to understand things through their tactile sense, as that is their dominant sense. Now what happens is as children get older, sort of somewhere between the ages 9 to 11, there's a convergence in your brain between vision and touch, whereby vision actually takes over and becomes more of a dominant sense. Having said that, what we don't know from science before you say, well, but you said earlier that some people are very um, touch-driven, is we don't know whether this convergence takes place in everyone. So there's neuroscience in the small numbers of studies that demonstrate that this definitely happens. So this is why this particular box that you described is so interesting, because you are almost guaranteed that the child's going to go up and feel the differences in texture and actually not let go of this box until they go, need this, need this, need this, and times and the poor parent will leave buying this box guaranteed
1: it seems like an increasingly common form of shopping is to go online and yes. pick your items that way so if tactility is so important when it comes to consumer behavior isn't that a bit of a problem
4: Yes and no. See, It also depends on how much of a need for touch you actually need. So we know that people who have a high need for touch are more likely to send things back. But you can overcome this for consumers who have a high need for touch. You can describe things in more detail for them. Tell them what something actually feels like. Don't say it feels coarse. Explain why it feels coarse. What does it compare to? Is it like sandpaper so that they can actually understand what it feels like? But again, you wouldn't online perhaps want to create unusual experiences for consumers when it arrives at home. Because again, if they have expectations and you don't meet them, the likelihood of sending it back increases. So consistency rather than surprises is even more important in those particular scenarios.
1: Technologically speaking, are there any ways to genuinely communicate how a product feels even if it's not right in front of you?
4: Not reliably for the moment. I know there is a bunch of French researchers that are looking into this and they're trying to create some sort of tactile pad, a little board that you effectively touch and you can sort of feel what things feels like. I don't think they're anywhere near completing this yet. There was a university further down south in the UK who was also looking at having
0: some kind of feedback in terms of what things felt like. So there are lots of people working on this. So perhaps in the future we'll be able to feel our clothes before we purchase them online. That would be interesting. Maybe I'll actually try online shopping for once. That was Catherine Janssen-Boyd from Anglia Ruskin University there
1: speaking to Katie. And we've just got time for the super sensor of the week. So which animal is seriously impressive when it comes to touch? Well, Beth Mortimer from Oxford University puts forward her vote.
12: There are many animals whose sense of touch involves detecting vibrations along surfaces. But my vote for supersensor will go to a small invertebrate that does this particularly impressively. It's the attractively named fungus-growing termite, Macrotermes natalensis. These termites live in galleries, elaborate structures with exquisite environmental control that can be up to 9 metres tall. Their vibration sense comes into play when predators attack the colony. When attacked, soldiers drum their heads against the ground, creating vibrations that propagate along the gallery walls. Other termites are sensitive to these signals. Soldiers will respond by drumming themselves. This creates a kind of Mexican wave of vibrations that amplifies the signal so it reaches more termites. What has granted them super-sensor status is their ability to detect the direction the vibration is coming from. Worker termites move away from the source of vibration, whereas soldier termites move towards it. The ability to detect vibration relies on detecting differences between sensors in different places. For example, hearing something louder or earlier in one ear rather than the other. Termites detect vibrations through their legs, but the distance between their legs is under 16 millimetres. This raises the question, how do they overcome the limitations of their small size? Researchers from Ruhr University in Bochum, Germany, designed a clever experiment to answer this. Termites were placed on a split platform where vibrations into the legs on either side of their body could be independently controlled. They show that termites detect a time difference between their legs, so the side of their body that detects the vibration first points towards the source. The termites are remarkably sensitive, able to detect time differences as low as 0.2 milliseconds. The sensory systems of these termites have therefore compensated for their small dimensions, illustrating that being small doesn't stop you being a super sensor when it comes to touch.
1: Thanks Beth and that's the last of our animal super senses but if you've got a question for our question of the week slot you can email chris at scientist.com, find us on Facebook tweet at Naked Scientists or you can get in contact on the forum the slash forum
0: And that brings us to the end of the programme and in fact Senses Month we've been voyaging through taste touch smell hearing and sight and we haven't even touched upon all the amazing stuff about the senses crossing over in minds and things like anaesthesia so maybe that's something to come back to in another census month in the future but next week we're taking a look at water where does it come from how do we use it and could our supplies ever run out do join us then the naked scientist comes to you from cambridge university and it's supported by the stfc the epsrc and rolls-royce i'm georgia mills and thank you very much for listening goodbye